Okay, so by now you've probably heard about microdosing. But if you haven't, do a quick search online and you'll see that all sorts of people are microdosing to feel more calm and help with pain relief and much more. Now I regularly deal with insomnia and anxiety and I know that I'm not alone. Microdosing has really helped me calm my racing mind and wind down at the end of a long day. Some people out there even use it for workouts and recovery. Now before you tense up about three little letters, keep in mind that microdose gummies by tonight's sponsor, Lumi Labs, are completely legal everywhere in the US. And yes, these gummies contain cannabinoids, but I'm not talking about getting quote-unquote high in that stereotypical sense. I'm talking about entry-level doses of THC and CBD to give you that mood lift, creative boost, and that sense of calm. Microdose gummies are infused with Oregon-grown berries and made with high-quality organic ingredients, so they taste just as good as they make you feel. Now, Microdose is available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing THC, just do a quick search online or go to microdose.com and use code MONSTERSAMONGUS to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show notes, but again, that's microdose.com and the code MONSTERSAMONGUS. Now, as always, supporting our sponsors supports the show. So thank you for listening. Now back to that footprint you found in the garden. your guide, Derek Hayes. Thank you so much for joining us here this evening. I have a spectacular show slated for you tonight. But before we get started, as I sat down to write this week's episode, I learned of the passing of reporter, cartoonist, paranormal researcher, author, and all-around great lady, Linda Godfrey. You might recognize Linda from her books, mostly about her hometown legend, Wisconsin's Beast of Bray Road. She was even featured in part of a clip that I featured in a very recent episode. Now I had the pleasure of speaking with Linda for over an hour back in 2018. She was kind enough to see that I was well out of my element at a meet and greet and approached and instantly struck up a conversation. Of course, werewolves was the subject at hand. But Linda's research and books are pivotal sources to many of us researchers. So allow me to say thank you, Linda. And you will be missed. Now on to a somewhat lighter note. A strange craft over the skies of Arizona. A story brought to us by Nico. Hey Derek, it's Nico in Arizona again. I've been kind of sitting on this call, I don't really know why. It was last year, I think, that, um, yeah, I think it was last year, that um, I was out in my backyard, and I live right under a flight path for commercial jets coming into, um, coming into Tucson International Airport. They come over basically right over my house and they bank southwards towards the airport. But I was out in the backyard, it was kind of getting dark, and I heard an airplane above me. I'm like, oh, it's just an airplane. So I looked up, and I was like, oh, it's just an airplane. But then I did a double take, so I'm like, do airplanes have a running light that's off-center on them? And so I looked again, and all of a sudden, this, like, I thought it was a running light at first. This light seemed to detach itself from the airplane and speed up, going 
in front of the craft, front of the craft. And then I, I could audibly hear the plane's engines kicking into a higher gear as the plane sped up. And then it kind of fell behind. This light kind of fell behind. It followed the plane as it went off. But then the plane eventually was able to get off without, I don't know, getting caught or something like that. But then I just saw this light just kind of like meandering after it in that same direction. Now, I did attempt to take a photo of this. I did see the thumbnail come up on my phone. And then the next day when I went to look at the photo, it was black. I don't know why. It was just black. Like I saw the thumbnail come up after I took the photo. I'm like, yes, I got it. But then it was just black the next day, which is super weird. I did contact the FAA to try to get radar records. I was able to pull records through um, Freedom of Information Act, but when I read the disc, apparently there was nothing on it. So that's kind of weird. But yeah, maybe if someone was on that plane that's listening, they could help me out here. But thank you, Derek. Thank you for what you do. Talk to you later. Many thanks, Nico. Now, this is not your typical UFO or UAP sighting. A glowing orb of light, dancing with, orbiting around, or otherwise pestering an aircraft. Now, where is it that I've heard that description before? There were sailors on ships. There were GIs on the ground in artillery battalions. There were German soldiers on the other side of the line. People from all uh, sides of the war were involved and, and reported the same thing. Pilots described them as seemingly guided balls of light. The descriptions of the Foo Fighters are disturbingly alike. Pilots would report uh, glowing luminous balls of light that would come up from the ground, often orange or red, uh, anywhere from one foot to six feet in diameter, would accelerate up to their altitude and then level off very quickly and then stay beside the airplane. They would fly either singly or in pairs or in trio or four objects, oftentimes in rigid formation, which is important. And all of these flight dynamics point um, in one way or another to a fairly high intelligent level of guidance. Now that clip courtesy of the television program sightings. So long before Dave Grohl, the Foo Fighters were haunting the skies over Europe. And it seems that each side experienced this phenomena. And all throughout the war, each of those sides assumed the other was responsible for the glowing foe. In fact, from that very same sightings episode, here are a pair of interviews with actual World War II pilots. Interviews that were recorded well over 30 years ago. Robert May was the tail gunner on a B-24 for the last two years of World War II. He vividly recalls a dangerous top-secret mission to drop guns and ammunition behind German lines. But it wasn't the nature of the mission that has stayed with Robert for more than a half century. It's what he saw up there. I spied something out there. It was kind of bright. Didn't know if it was an aircraft or what it was. I'd say it was probably traveling at a fairly decent speed, maybe 200 miles an hour, 300 miles an hour, and it was coming toward us, but it was coming in a bright light. That's what made it so odd that we could not identify. But we all knew exactly whatever, whatever uh, enemy aircraft was there, we knew what it was. It was very easy because that's one of the things we learned real quick, Mike. Bob Leroy, a member of the 11th Airborne in New Guinea, remembers his first sighting of the mysterious craft. Suddenly I saw this ball about this size, that, that thing there about three feet in diameter, following this Japanese Betty bomber. And it started changing colors. I thought I'd seen a new secret weapon. I had to agree with the rest of the guys because that's what they all thought it was. They didn't know any better. And uh, nobody had ever heard of a UFO in 44. You know, in my research for this entry, I couldn't help but notice that it seems Foo Fighters are no longer discussed among military circles. No news coverage, no stories shared on the subject. So does that mean that this enigma is gone, jettisoned back to wherever it is that it came from? Or is it possible that the phenomena is still here? It's just the name that's changed. Now, how many of you remember this encounter? And let me know if it sounds familiar. 
It's the video that's making even skeptics do a double take. The video was shot by U.S. fighter pilots on a training mission off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida. Pilots reported seeing mysterious objects that could reach hypersonic speeds, five times the speed of sound, and still turn on a dime. Even the New York Times is taking the UFO sighting seriously. Wow, what is that? Navy pilots report unexplained flying objects. Yeah, I don't know. It certainly sounds similar to me. And that clip courtesy of Inside Edition. Now, obviously, the two descriptions aren't a perfect match, but the maneuvers described by not only the World War II and contemporary pilots, but by Nico himself are too similar not to at least be mentioned. And I certainly can't say that Nico had a Foo Fighter experience, but based on the info I just shared, I can't say that he didn't either. Thank you again, Nico, for calling in. You know, speaking of glowing orbs of light with a military connection, check out this very similar entry I received from an anonymous caller from Parts Unknown. Hey Derek, I'm a huge fan of the show. I'm going to remain anonymous, but I was just calling today to touch on the glowing unidentified flying objects. So I was in the military. This specific event, I'm going to keep it a broad range, but this occurred in the mountains of Nevada. It was around 10 years ago-ish range. So my job in the military, I basically tracked the skies. Memorized hundreds of aircraft, a bunch of different types of flying objects. Anything could be included, ball lightning, satellites, etc. So on one night on one of our operations, what we call it, of course our job is to track the skies. Um, and one particular night there was a bunch of different glowing objects in the sky. Now, not too far away is a classified beast, but on this particular night, I, I was curious because I, I was actually on watch. So you stay up in some portion of the night, just keep track of things, make sure you and your other military members are safe. So this particular night, it was clear night, beautiful, not much light pollution at all out there. I noticed this one glowing orb in the sky. It was more of an orange-reddish color. Uh, got really curious. I mean, we see these a lot, but not as close. So I took out our magnified night vision optics and searched the sky. And uh, it's a little uh, dumbfounded because when I looked through the night vision goggles, there were probably about four other glowing objects, but I, I couldn't see it. But it was very, very dim on the night vision, so I thought, eh, maybe it's uh, maybe something in the background, or maybe it's just not quite catching whatever's out there. So, take night vision off, I still see the red-orange glow uh, moving around in a way that it can't explain. It's not a drone either. Most drones make some type of noise, even the silent ones. And mind you, I've seen hundreds of aircraft in the sky and drones, UAVs, everything. So I went ahead and put on my thermal optics, and I clearly could see these other four glowing orbs kind of moving in different formations around the, the, the orange-red orb. So I... I was kind of dumbfounded, too, because the, the glowing orb that I can see was letting off little pulses. Um, and it kind of seemed like the other orbs were, I don't know if they were reacting or communicating, but it was just very strange. I mean, a lot of times we bug it up to military experiments or whatever, but yeah, I just thought I'd give a little insight on that. If you ever see any of these glowing orbs, check it out in different other frequencies. Um, highly recommend that. Uh, but anyway, I'm a huge fan of the show. Just started catching up. And keep up the good work, man. Thanks for all you do. 
Now that's certainly some good advice, caller. If you have access to that kind of equipment. Now again, I'm not saying that this was another Foo Fighter experience. But for the sake of argument, let's say that it was. I could understand why a superior civilization would want to keep tabs on us through old WWII. But why now? Why here, in the U.S.? And why Arizona and Nevada? Questions, I'm sure, will be answered in due time. Until then, however, thank you, caller, for contributing. Now, if you're sitting there at home thinking, you know, I have a story that's perfect for this program, well, then call our 24-7 toll-free hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 888-608-6444. Now, if you're submitting from outside the U.S. and want to avoid any fees or charges that might spring up from an international call, just record the story on your phone and send it to me at monstersamonguspodcast at gmail.com. Well, thanks to our previous callers, we have the skies covered. So how about the roads? Please welcome Hunter from the state of Minnesota. Hey, my name is Hunter. I live in central Minnesota. I was on my way to pick up my uh, brother from uh, his job. It was uh, 9 o'clock or so. It was pitch dark outside about December, January, somewhere around there. Snow was still on the ground. It was pretty decently cold. And on the road to get there, I was just on my way into town, not quite there, but uh, pitch dark all around. I could only see uh, where my headlights were shining. And as I was driving for like, probably saw for only like two seconds, maybe one, I was driving around mm, 10 above the speed limit. I will admit that. But I saw this individual. I'm very certain that they were uh, like a individual walking on the side of the road, not like a sign or anything. And they were wearing a, like, at least to me, it sort of looked like a sleeveless jean jacket. They appeared to be, well, a woman, younger age, I think. She had a bit shorter hair. She didn't have any light like a flashlight or anything. She was just walking on the side of the road. And from what I could see, I think she was wearing like, I imagine it might've been a sweatshirt or something around her waist. And she had a, I want to say it was like a sort of like vest maybe. I couldn't quite pick out all the details, but it was that sort of outline. I didn't see any pants. It looked like they were probably wearing shorts. And yeah, that's pretty much the whole thing. I mean, it could have been a druggie, I don't know, but I still don't really understand why anyone would be out there nine o'clock in the pitch dark. They could have easily gotten run over if uh, they weren't careful. So, I mean, I only saw them for like a second or two. And I originally just wrote it off because like, again, it could have been a druggie or something, I don't know. But as I was listening to one of your episodes, is uh, season 10, episode 1, and that made me think about that. And, yeah, I love the podcast. Absolutely awesome. It gets me through my uh, second shift. Yeah, have a good day. Thank you, Hunter. You know, this seems like a good time to point out that the views expressed in these calls do not necessarily reflect mine. In other words, I believe druggy is considered a derogatory term, though I'm sure Hunter meant no offense by it. Now, either way, the experience is unsettling. But you know, I feel like we've all been there, driving along late at night, only to pass someone walking along a darkened stretch of highway. It's jarring. It takes you by surprise. And at least for me, it helps put things in perspective. It's easy to put yourself in their shoes. Once the rush of light and sound of a passing car has faded into the distance, they're back to their silent trek through lands we only observe at 65 miles an hour. Hey, 
and that's all without adding any paranormal elements. But it's spooky stuff, Hunter, and we certainly thank you for sharing it with us here tonight. Now, real quick, folks, if you ordered a Monsters Among Us hoodie, they just shipped out this past Monday. Now, many of you should probably have them already, in fact. And for those that haven't, just keep an eye on that mailbox. Now, it almost goes without saying, don't forget about our merchandise shop as well. MonstersAmongUsPodcast.com forward slash shop. There's still time to order for the holidays. Again, that's Monsters Among Us Podcast forward slash shop. Or just hit that shop tab. Well, how about we hit play on this next entry? An orb of a different sort. At least, I think. Oh, from Indiana. Welcome to the program. Hi, Derek. You can call me O. I live in Indianapolis, Indiana. And that's where my story takes place. Several years ago at this point, I'm talking like over a decade. I was probably nine or ten at the time. But I used to live in an apartment with my parents. And that apartment always had some weird going on. So the toilet and like the sink in, in the front bathroom would always like overflow for no reason. Like it wouldn't be clogged or anything and it would just overflow. And there was this weird spot on the ceiling in the main bedroom. And, you know, when I'd go in there, it would be, you know, everybody would be talking about it and how like, you know, oh, this, it has bad vibes. And I would be able to, I'd, I'd look up and I would see, yep, there's this, you know, icky brown spot. And then I didn't find out until I was much older that nobody else could see it. I was the only one who saw that little spot. The thing is, they would always do what they could to like cleanse the bad energy, and it just kept coming back every time. But the main experiences that I had that are the big ones that I wanted to talk about are there was this thing in my room. I remember at night I had trouble sleeping because I would look in the corner over by my closet and there was this massive orb with two smaller orbs floating around it. And I just got the worst feeling, like I just felt sick and frightened whenever I was in that corner of my room, no matter the time. But the orb only ever showed up at night. And my mom actually managed to get a photo of it but we've since lost it, of course. But the fact that we were actually able to catch it on camera is kind of incredible. And then the, the last thing I wanted to talk about was one night I was going to bed and I woke up and there was this figure, like this shadow figure coming out of the wall that had my door on it. And this figure was emerging from the wall. Like it had it, one of its arms reaching out like it was trying to to grab something and it was weird it looked like rainbow television static i'm not sure if it was like the glimmer man or what but it was just bizarre it just floated out and i hid under my covers and when i peeked back out it was gone and i ended up actually getting out of bed to check the linen closet that was like right on the other side of the wall from where it was so and there was nothing in there. You know, I actually got in trouble for that, too, because it was past my bedtime. But, yeah, I had some really weird experiences in that apartment. So thank you very much for listening. Have a good one. And hi, Mom! Oh, yeah. Hi, Mom. And thank you, O. You know, I wish I could see that photo. It's a shame... All the paranormal evidence lost to missing photos, drives, tapes, etc. I know I lost a pretty decent EVP in a similar fashion. But as for O's activity, there's a wide spectrum of it. Plumbing issues, ceiling stains, giant orbs of light, a shadow figure emerging from the wall. Maybe a glimmer man-esque shadow figure it all sort of sounds like a phenomenon that I call nighttime visitors 
children's sleep disrupted by an unwanted guest at the night's darkest hour. Now, we've heard all sorts of these reports over the years, but this is the first glowing ball of light that I can recall. I'll tell you what, I have more on this phenomenon later on in the production. So until then, let's put a cork in this combo and simply say thank you, O, for sharing the entry. <laughs> this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wished that life came with a user manual? You know, I've had that thought many a time when dealing with difficult situations. Life's challenges can be overwhelming, whether it's job-related, a new relationship, or maybe family drama. And it's so easy to feel crushed under all that pressure and feel stuck or hopeless. Well, you know, I found that therapy can really help with navigating those difficult emotions or situations. Not only is it good to get things off my chest, but therapy has taught me better coping skills and helped me grow as a person. And I think it could help you too. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash monsters among us. That's betterhelp.com forward slash monsters among us. Now, as always, supporting our sponsors supports the show. So thank you for listening. And back to that thing that's rummaging through your garbage. Now, this evening's next eerie entry takes us to the state of Vermont where Josh is waiting with a tail. Hi, my name is Josh. Um, I'm calling from Vermont. My wife actually told me I should call and tell this one. I deliver food and stuff on the road for my job, and I have this one particular stop that I have like once a month, basically, where I have to deliver to this farm, this old, creepy-ass farm. And the first time I delivered there, for, for one, I get there at like 3.30, 4 in the morning. And there's nobody there. There's no lights, nothing. And they give you a code for the door to get into the meat market area. And so I grab the stuff, bring it in, unlock the door. I open the door and it's like a prototypical meat market. You know, cleavers and knives and all sorts of stuff hanging from the walls. And so it's super creepy. And... I found the light, and the light just lights up the one little area that I was in, and I found the cooler, and when I opened the cooler, there are like 20 mutilated cow bodies just hanging there, which was creepy enough as it is. So I quickly put the stuff in there, was getting the hell out of there, and as I was walking out, I realized I forgot the invoice, and so I go and open the door, and I see like a person or a thing rush by the door down the hallway. I hadn't seen anybody, I hadn't heard anybody. There was no cars around, there were no other lights on. So I walked in a little further and I heard like a noise. So when I went to check it out, I saw nothing. There was nothing, nobody there, no lights on. All the doors around it were locked. So then I left. (laughs) I got out of there as fast as I could. And yeah, every time I go there, I'm very apprehensive to go inside because I saw somebody, something, walking through there and I can't explain what it was because there was nobody there and every time I go there there's never anyone there so needless to say I deliver very quickly there whenever I go now because that situation happened anyway I listen to your podcast every day driving it really helps it makes the day go by a little faster so thank you Josh's story has given me serious Goonie vibes a thing locked in the basement I half expected it to be wearing a Superman shirt. Now, whatever it is you ran into that morning, Josh, we thank you for sharing it here with us. Now, next up is a caller whose name I 
couldn't quite catch. So instead of butchering it, I'll simply say, please welcome our next caller, out of Florida. Oh, hello, Derek. This is Concy. I'm calling from Florida. Uh, I am originally from Brazil, and I have been living here for over 30 years. I had many paranormal experiences, and I would start with the one when I heard Bigfoot. That was about 15 years ago in Gainesville, Florida. I was living with my daughter uh, in this apartment, and my daughter was young. She was uh, in the middle school. That time, there was not a lot of development around, uh, even though we lived in the apartments, and, you know, there's a lot of forest. Nowadays, they, there are houses all over, but 15 years ago, the forest was very deep. So one night, I was sleeping and I heard about two or three in the morning this scream. It sounded like a person and animal at the same time. And uh, I thought, oh my God, what is this? And it took about 30 minutes on and on. And uh, I thought about waking my daughter so she would hear that and help me to understand what will happen. But she had to go to school the next day, and so I decided not to. And that went on for a whole week, same time, and uh, crazy, like 30 minutes or so. Then when I heard your podcast, I heard the, the, the what they had, uh, they think is Bigfoot sounds. And I'm telling you, it sounds just like that. Okay, so I thought I would call you. And uh, I have a lot, of, a lot more experiences, paranormal experiences. So I'll call next time. And uh, thank you so much for the podcast. I listen to you when I travel. And uh, I really appreciate Okay, Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for the entry. You know that skunk ape country down there? The smaller, more ornery cousin of the Bigfoot. Now it's said to appear more orangutan-like than gorilla-like, rumored to inhabit the gator and cottonmouth-infested swamps of southern, central Florida, parts of the Panhandle. And our caller's story reminds me of another experience, reported to the Sarasota Police Department back in the year 2000. The recount was delivered in letter form and was accompanied by a pair of photos that appear to show an orangutan-esque creature hiding behind some palmettos. Now this is what that letter said. Dear Sir or Madam, Enclosed, please find some pictures I took late September or early October of 2000. My husband says he thinks it's an orangutan. Is someone missing an orangutan? It is hard to judge from the photos how big this orangutan really is. It is in a crouching position in the middle of standing up from where it was sitting. It froze as soon as the flash went off. I didn't even see it as I took the first picture, because it was so dark. As soon as the flash went off for the second time, it stood up and started to move. Then I heard the orangutan walk off into the bushes. From where I was standing, I judge it as being about six feet and a half to seven feet tall, in a kneeling position. As soon as I realized how close it was, I got back to the house. It had an awful smell that lasted well after it left my yard. The orangutan was making deep whoop sounds. It sounded much further away than it turned out to be. If I'd had known it was as close to the hedgerow as it was, I wouldn't have walked up as close as I did. I'm a senior citizen, and if this animal had come out of the hedgerow after me, there wasn't a thing I could have done about it. I was about 10 feet away from it when it stood up. I'm concerned because my grandchildren like to come down and explore my backyard. An animal this big could hurt someone seriously. For two nights prior, it had been taking apples that my daughter brought from up north. Off our back porch. These pictures were taken on the third night it had raided my apples. It only came back one more night after that. And took some apples that my husband had left out and 
order to get a better look at it. We left out four apples. I cut two of them in half. The orangutan only took the whole apples. We didn't see it take them. We waited up, but eventually we had to go to bed. We got a dog back there now, and as far as we can tell, the orangutan hasn't been back. Please find out where this animal came from and who it belongs to. It shouldn't be loose like this. Someone will get hurt. I called a friend that used to work with animal control back up north, and he told me to call the police. I don't want any fuss or people with guns traipsing around behind our house. We live near I-75, and I'm afraid this orangutan could cause a serious accident if someone hit it. I once hit a deer that wasn't even the quarter of the size of this animal, and it totaled my car. At the very least, this animal belongs in a place like Bush Gardens, where it can be looked after properly. Why haven't people been told that an animal of this size is loose? How are people to know how dangerous this could be? If I had known an animal like this was loose, I wouldn't have approached it. I saw in the news that monkeys that get loose can carry hepatitis and are very dangerous. Please look after this situation. I don't want my backyard to turn into someone else's circus. God bless. I prefer to remain anonymous. There's a lot to unpack there. And a link to that letter and accompanying photos can be found in the show notes, per usual. So go take a look. And thank you again, caller, for sharing that entry. I don't know what it is you heard, but that is, admittedly, Sasquatch Country. Let's try to squeeze in one more story before we have to take a break to pay some bills. How about this one? From Hannah in the state of Virginia. Hi, Derek. This is Hannah from Virginia again. This is short and sweet like most of my other stories, but this was, I don't even know how many years ago, quite a few years ago, probably middle school, maybe early high school, I was with my family and my best friend, and we had gone to the Outer Banks. And it was, you know, perfect beach day, so we went out. And then my friend and I were both, like, I don't even know what what we were doing, but we were standing near the water, but not in it. And suddenly, like, I noticed it first, and then I drew her attention to it. And then she saw it, and we were so confused. And it was so weird. So it was was not a dolphin, that is for sure. It was kind of close to the shore, close enough that it was weird, like it wasn't out deep. And we could see it clearly enough. At first, it looked kind of like the texture and color of a log, I think, as if I can remember clearly. And I, I thought maybe it was like a piece of driftwood or something, whatever. But the more I looked at it, I realized that it would like go under the water and move not just like suddenly sink down or or bob up you know like it had life and it would you know kind of go under the water and then come back up and you know eventually it just didn't come back up but it was definitely alive and it was really weird because I hadn't seen anything like it since then or beforehand and it was just really weird Um, I know I don't even know what episode or season it was in but there was this one guy who had said he was on the in Florida and he had seen a similar thing and you I don't remember what exactly you had said it was clearly I just have a really good memory so forgive me but I don't remember what you said it was but it sounded like that could absolutely be what I saw since you mentioned that it was you know in more shallow water anyway so that could be it but it was weird it was like very stereotypical sea monster vibes it was it was a little confusing but anyway Just thought I'd share that because it was weird and it's fun to share those little things even if they're nothing. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Bye. Thanks, Anna. Now, you know, I don't remember either. But from the sounds of things, I probably suggested the oar fish. A long, ribbon-like fish with silver scales and horn-like fins. The creature's appearance is similar to that of a dragon and it can grow up to 36 feet in length. So that would be my first guess. But let's keep this paranormal if we can. And given the location, there's ample opportunity for that. 
The Virginian and Carolinian coasts are no stranger to stories of strange serpents seen swimming just off the shore. In fact, nearby to the location of Hannah's sighting is the town of Wilmington, North Carolina, home of a little-known serpent named Willie. The following information was found courtesy of the website Freaky Links. Wilmington, North Carolina. Sightings of a mysterious sea serpent have come from this area for centuries. Local Indian legends reported that a giant snake lived in the ocean at the mouth of the Cape Fear River and could only be appeased by a human sacrifice. The first written record of the serpent was made in 1524 when Italian explorer Giovanni de Verrazzano came to the area. In his journal, he wrote, We traveled to the mouth of the river and made camp. During the night, one of the men saw a great snake resting upon the waves not far from shore. Sightings continued as various parties tried unsuccessfully to build a city at this point on the eastern seaboard. The Earl of Wilmington, Spencer Compton, for whom the city is named, reported seeing something surface in the water during 1732. James Calden, a part-time naturalist and full-time Union soldier, took down accounts of the beast when he was stationed in the city in 1865. He wrote, Local citizens all seem to see the same thing, a long snake-like creature that surfaced occasionally at the mouth of the Cape Fear River. It is described as being dull gray in color, approximately four feet wide and over 40 feet in total length. They have named it Willie in honor of the town of Wilmington. But some obscure website isn't the only place I managed to find a mention of a monster around those parts. Now, in my research, I also found a journal entry that is featured in author and researcher Adam Benedict's book, Monsters in Print. It features a journal entry by the captain of the Santa Clara. The account was written at the request of the Associated Press and radioed to New York after the ship's report to the Coast Guard that it had struck a quote-unquote sea monster in the Atlantic off the coast of North Carolina. And the entry reads, Aboard the SS Santa Clara, December 30th, AP by radio. On December 30th, 1947, a Graceline steamer Santa Clara was cleaving through the sunlit calm blue seas, 118 miles due east of Cape Lookout, en route from New York to Cartagena. The Santa Clara had just crossed the Gulf Stream, when William Humphreys, chief mate, John Rainey, navigating officer, and John Allickson, third mate, assembled on the starboard wing of the bridge to take the noon sight at 11.55 a.m. Suddenly, John Allickson saw a snake-like head rear out of the sea about 30 feet off the starboard bow of the vessel. His explanation of amazement directed the attention of the other two mates to the sea monster, and the three watched it unbelievingly as... In a moment's time, it came a beam of the bridge where they stood, and was then left astern. The creature's head appeared to be about two and a half feet across, two feet thick, and five feet long. The cylindrical-shaped body was about three feet thick, and the neck about one and a half feet in diameter. As the monster came a beam of the bridge, it was observed that the water around the monster, over an area of thirty or forty feet square, was stained red. The visible part of the body was about 35 feet long. It was assumed that the color of the water was due to the creature's blood and that the stern of the ship had cut the monster in two. But there was no observer to the other side of the vessel. There was no way of estimating the length of the body that might have been left on the other side. From the time the monster was first sighted until it disappeared in the distance astern, it was thrashing about as though in agony. The monster's skin was dark brown, slick and smooth. There were no fins, hair, or protuberances on the head, neck, or visible parts of the body. So I don't know, maybe it is an oarfish, or maybe it was some sort of trick of the light, a refraction from the water, perhaps. Or, maybe like Verrazano, Spencer Compton, and Jay Forden, Hannah too saw something infamous in those waters. Regardless, we thank you, Hannah, for sharing that report with us. If you're struggling to find that unique gift for that tough-to-buy-for person on your holiday shopping list, 
Or maybe you just have a long list of people to buy for, and you really want to knock their socks off this year. Check out Uncommon Goods. Uncommon Goods has everything from a dangerous games to play in the dark book for your thrill-seeking friend, to experiences like 90-minute how-to-read tarot classes. Whether you're looking for eclectic art, games, or clothing, they have plenty of awesome options for gift-giving that you won't find anywhere else. And because it's the season for giving, with every purchase made at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've already donated over $2.5 million to date. So to get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com forward slash monsters among us. That's uncommongoods.com forward slash monsters among us for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods. We're out of the ordinary. Now, if you don't mind, one more quick announcement here this evening. After three long years and so much hard work, we finally locked picture on our feature film, Shadows in the Desert, High Strangeness, in the Borrego Triangle. Now, don't go getting all antsy in your pansy just yet, because the next step is distribution. But we've already set up a handful of meetings, and I'm confident that we'll get this thing out to you guys real, real soon. Now, as for you Kickstarter backers, sit tight. That reward package will go out as soon as we're able to print off our Blu-rays. Now, trust me when I say that this came out much better than I thought it was going to. And it's totally going to be worth the wait. But that said, we truly appreciate your patience. I'm not sure if you're aware how much goes into something like this. But let me assure you, there was a lot of blood, sweat, probably some tears shed over this one. Now, I'm incredibly anxious to share this project with you guys, so stand by for further updates. And if you would, also stand by for this next entry, a story sent in anonymously from the state of Massachusetts. Howdy, Derek. Howdy, everybody. I live in Massachusetts, but I am originally from Iowa, lived a few places around the country. From a young age, I feel like I've been sensitive and tuned to something that really, you know, I don't have the answers, but I know what I've experienced and what I've seen. And when I was little, up until puberty, it went away, but I could see colors around people. Just kind of this emanating, like look over at my sister and she's yellow and my brother's green and, you know, someone's blue learned later that you know most people refer to that as auras it was a color-coded system for me this is kind of judge people how i felt about them uh you remember at one point outside playing with my friends and there was this man his back was to us but there was just like this mucky brown blackish it was it was ominous whatever was emanating from him and I just remember thinking how badly I did not want him to turn around and take a look at us. Uh, so I tapped my friends, like, you know, let's get the hell out of here. And that was a pretty common occurrence that I would get gut feelings about things strong enough where I had to, you know, just kind of warn people around me. We went to play, we played baseball a lot in the neighborhood. And there was this empty lot that we were all going to go check out. And I was about to step my foot into it, and my foot hovered over the grass. And I just put it back on the sidewalk. I felt hot. Something felt hot. It felt wrong. Everything in my guts just said, this is too much. <laughs> uh, later to find out, in later years, that that actually uh, had a house on it that had burned down. So there's a lot of things like that, a lot of gut feelings. You know, my, my mother had, would have dreams and gut feelings and, you know, do the same thing with, you know, warning us kids. I got older, the colors went away, but the ability, I think, to, you know, just kind of feel people out stayed with me. She always called it the power of discernment. <laughs> you know, growing up, you know, just odd things happen, and especially through my 20s, I feel like there was this big burst of stuff. I think that's for another tale. Now I feel like it's fizzling out as I get older, and I'm, I'm fine with that. That stuff's exhausting. 
but definitely think it runs in the family. My little niece was in the graveyard recently, you know, family paying respects to my my parents who have passed now. And, you know, she just walks around talking to nobody, seemingly. I feel like it's, you know, it's one of us. <laughs> Give it time. But, yeah, that's a... Uh, yeah, that's my, my tale of uh, auras growing up, and maybe I'll call back a, another time with some other interesting interactions. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for the show. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you, caller. Now, for those of you unfamiliar, according to spiritual beliefs, an aura or energy field is a colored emanation said to enclose a human body or animal, or object. In some esoteric positions, the aura is described as a subtle body. At least that's Wikipedia's definition. In layman terms, it's an energy field given off by your body that some people claim they can see. And according to those people, each person has a distinct color that is presented. And those colors determine personality traits, and motivations, and that sort of thing. In fact, here are the meanings behind each color represented, according to interactive enterprises. Red represents passion, physicality, strength, determination, and groundedness. Orange represents excitement, vitality, thrill-seeking, leadership, and confidence. Yellow represents optimism, laughter, freedom, inspiration, and creativity. While green represents healing, generosity, service, responsibility, love, and nature. And blue represents communication, self-expression, depth, intuition, and clarity. Indigo represents wisdom, insight, sensitivity, spirituality, deep inner knowing. And finally, purple, which I guess is different than indigo. And it represents higher consciousness, visionary qualities, and spiritual awareness. Now, the last time I was in Sedona, Arizona, we visited one of those Aura photography studios. And you know, my colors were yellow, red, and orange. And I almost hate to admit it, but it was eerily accurate. Now, outside that experience, I know very little about this practice. But I do thank you, caller, for allowing us to explore it just a little bit further. And now, ladies, gents, weirdos, I present to you tonight's final entry. A story that's certain to keep even the most hardened of specimens awake tonight. A tale that could, in theory, happen to any of us. Please join me in welcoming Dustin from Louisiana to the program. Hi, my name is Dustin, and I'm from a small town in South Louisiana. And growing up in South Louisiana, there's a lot of mystique and paranormal stuff going on down there. But my story is more to do with something that's very real, and it's about my great aunt. So growing up, we would always see her at church or at family events, and she was very old. From what I could tell, she was blind, had some pretty severe scars on her face. And when I was about eight years old, my dad told me the story of what happened to her. And the story was scarier than really anything paranormal, in my opinion. So in the mid-70s, she was working a job and she would be coming home late. And on one of these drives home, she ended up losing control of her car, running into a ditch and then hitting a tree. And whenever the EMS arrived on the scene, they couldn't, for whatever reason, find a pulse. Her eyes and face had been severely cut up and damaged during the crash. So from what I heard, she looked dead and there was no pulse. She was severely mutilated. And so they just declared her dead right there. Well, they bring her to the morgue and put her in one of those lockers where they have the people on the table. And from 
the way that my dad told me. After her being there for about six hours, she came to in this black box. It was cold. She couldn't see anything. She was in excruciating pain. And all she could do was move her toes. And so she started lightly tapping on the side of this box that she was in with her feet because that was the only thing she could do. And luckily for her, there was a janitor on the night shifts. And he heard this soft tapping coming from in this row of lockers, which is terrifying in itself. They were able to get her out and save her life. And she ended up living a long and happy life. But that's my non-paranormal story that really creeped me out and showed just how much you have to trust the guys that come and help you out on the side of the road. Thanks for letting me call and love the show. That's one of those stories that'll make your skin crawl. Thank you, Dustin, for sharing it with us. Well, let's begin with a little backstory on funeral preparation. Most bodies these days that aren't instantly cremated are embalmed. Essentially, it's a process that drains the blood and replaces it with a cocktail of chemicals meant to preserve the body. Though the process has been around since the days of the pharaohs, it only really became popular during the Civil War, when distraught families wished to transport their fallen loved ones who may have died on the other side of the country. Now, I can't speak for other countries and other cultures. Some still do not use this method. But here in the States, it's been common practice for going on 150 years. But of course, Dustin's aunt didn't make it that far. Luckily. She was discovered as she was awaiting that obviously lethal procedure. But that process has sort of become a fail-safe little insurance policy to ensure that her loved ones aren't mistakenly entombed before their time. And you know it happens from time to time. Someone will reach that point in the preparation process that embalming begins. And that's when everyone in the room receives a bit of a surprise. It doesn't happen all that often, but it did happen to Walter Williams in Mississippi less than a decade ago. The story is spreading like wildfire. How Walter Williams woke up from the dead in Holmes County. I asked the coroner what happened. He said, oh, they can call us a miracle. I stood there and watched them put him in a, a body bag and zipped it up. The coroner says he checked the pulse around 9 o'clock Wednesday night and pronounced Williams dead at his home in Lexington with no heartbeat. After the coroner helped move Williams to Porter and Son's funeral home, workers were getting ready to embalm him. But that's when he started to move. He was not dead, long story short. Byron Porter says it's the first time he's ever seen anything like it. A man inside a body bag kicking to get out. So he missed it by how much? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. A couple of minutes, maybe? No, no, no. More than that, maybe. Well, we definitely was not going to do anything to him. And, Once you saw that he was right, that he, that right, that he was not deceased. Right. Paramedics rushed Williams to the hospital where tonight family members say they're happy he's alive. Now, I don't know how long he's going to be here, but I know he's back right now. And that's all what count. That clip, courtesy of WAPT, ABC News 16, out of Jackson. And which do you think is worse? The cold drawers of the morgue, or the inside of a used body bag? I couldn't fathom either, quite frankly. And sure, we have fail-safes here today that keep that sort of thing from happening. But aren't you just a little curious about what happens when there aren't. We'll get a load of this story featuring motorcyclist Angelo Hayes. No relation. According to Innovative History, Angelo Hayes was a passionate motorcycle lover from a very young age. One day he crashed his bike, smashing into a brick wall. Hayes was sent flying, and when people rushed to his aid, he was so badly disfigured, apparently everyone on the scene just assumed there was no way he could have survived. 
The doctors wouldn't even let his parents see the body because it was so upsetting, and so he was buried. As Forbes notes, his father had recently taken out a large life insurance policy on his son, which was lucky for Hayes because the insurance company got suspicious. They demanded he be exhumed, at which point he was discovered to be alive, just in a very deep coma. After surgery, he made a full recovery. Hayes finally died for real in 2008. Now that story courtesy of Grunge on YouTube. And they have a list of other accidental burials. If this makes your skin tingle, I highly recommend checking out the others. The link is, of course, in the show notes. It was certainly a terrifying concept. And if you lived 100 or so years ago, or in a place that still doesn't practice embalming today, I suppose it still is. And there's no shortage of buried alive stories on the internet. And let's hope the internet is where those stories stay. A big thanks for the entry, Dustin. Because that's going to do it for this episode. But before I go, I was a guest on this week's episode of Tales of the Fandom. The episode came out on Monday. And I had a great conversation with the host, David Ginsberg about everything from cryptids and favorite stories to behind the scenes of Monsters Among Us in the early days of podcasting. You can listen to that episode of Tales of the Fandom wherever you get your podcasts now. Now, Monsters Among Us Beyond was written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support was provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. All media used in this production was done so under the protection of fair use. Please take the time to follow us on our social media accounts. And while you're at it, hop on over to YouTube and give us a like and follow there as well. If you like the show and want to help support, please leave a rate and review wherever possible. Five stars and a few kind words go a long way to help the show grow. Now finally, tonight's score was provided by Iron Cthulhu Apocalypse, Co.AG Music, and Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Thank you so much for listening. Keep it spooky. And until next week. Now, tonight's secret entry allows us to revisit the nighttime visitor phenomena I touched on earlier with O's entry. Well, here to give us another wrinkle is Chris from Parts Unknown. Hello, Derek. This is Chris Odin again. Uh, I've called in a few times, probably. I mean, I, I haven't heard my stories used yet, but I may have missed it if you did use it. I recently came across a story, and I cannot remember the specifics of it, that a friend told me regarding seeing an entity, something that resembled a puppet at a young age. And so I'm curious if you've ever received any calls reporting anything of that nature. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard anything like that. And if not, you know, I've but kind of fallen down a rabbit hole of like written testaments to this kind of weird phenomena. So, you know, obligatorily, I love the show. You do great work. I can't wait to hear the next episode as always. Thanks. Bye. Okay. So he didn't specifically say that the puppet like creature was a bedroom or even a nighttime visitor, but that's the vibe that I got. But how about it, folks? Have you ever heard of anything like this? If so, give us a call. 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. I know Chris and I both would love to hear from you. And real quick, speaking of reaching out. Last week I announced that Monsters Among Us is hiring for a part-time position. Apparently, a lot of you were interested 
and I mean a lot of you. So I'm going to leave the submissions open for another week or so. So go to MonstersAmongUsPodcast.com and hit the Jobs tab for more information. Now Sarah and I will slowly start going through the stack of submissions. With a little luck, we might have it narrowed down by the end of the year. So if you've submitted, thank you. And please be patient as we work through the process. Now then, it's finally time to dip into the darker half of this evening's broadcast. Another visit to the beyond. And another slate of spooky submissions. Backyard Spirits, a ghostly entity in a darkened forest. And this entry from Coyote in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Hey there, I'm a real big fan of the podcast. My name's Coyote, and I'm actually from southwestern Virginia. For a while before I moved, I actually volunteered.